This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of Torah passages with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted to be joined today by my friend, Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz. Rabbi Steinmetz is a senior rabbi at KJ, which is the legendary modern Orthodox synagogue on New York's Upper East Side. He previously held pulpits in Mount Vernon in Canada, where Rabbi Steinmetz is the past president of the Montreal Board of Rabbis. He writes regularly on his blog, chaimsteinmetz.blogspot.com, where he explains complex Jewish concepts and their very practical significance in videos and essays that can be consumed in three minutes or less. And it sounds like an impossible task, but I encourage everyone, go to the website and you will see how Jewish wisdom can be distilled for our benefit so magnificently. And uh, Rabbi Steinmetz and his wife, Lisa Schwartz, have four children and they live near the synagogue on the Upper East Side. So Rabbi Steinmetz, welcome to the Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. It is a, a, an honor and a pleasure to be here. So the passage, really the passages that you chose, it's, it's so interesting because it's not one passage, but it's really a collection of passage all around the idea of primogeniture. So explain to everyone, what is primogeniture? Why did you choose it of everything in the Bible to choose from to discuss today? So it, it, it is one of my favorite passages. It actually sort of, when we were talking about what's a favorite passage, and I was talking about Joseph and his brothers, and then we, we sort of enlarged it. So primogeniture is the idea that the first son, the eldest born son, is primary in terms of inheritance and in terms of running the household. And there are multiple implications of it. In Hebrew, we will call it the bichorah. Hmm. which is means the right of the firstborn or the, or the privileges and responsibilities of the firstborn. And one of the very interesting things about the Bible is that the Bible asserts the importance of the Bechor. There is certainly a, a sense that the Bechor, the firstborn, is holier, which is why ultimately when the Levites are chosen, so they have to be exchanged with the Bukhar, with the firstborn, because the firstborn otherwise would have those responsibilities. The Bukhar gets what we call in Hebrew pishnayim, which means a double portion of the inheritance. So the Bukhar has, has a, a, a certain unique status uh, that is given to them. And then there's the most important rule, which I don't want to neglect, is that the firstborn has to be redeemed, because that's a, a remembrance of the time when the Levites were exchanged for the firstborn. So to this day, on actually, it ends up being the 31st day of a child, uh, the, a firstborn male child, that child is redeemed so that we fulfill that commandment. Now, um, primogeniture was the concept that basically drove the ancient world. And in comes the Bible. And what's interesting, the example you chose, which is in Exodus 13, 2, the firstborn are given the priestly rights in the synagogue. And after the, the golden calf, it seems like they're all essentially fired. Well, they, they are fired after the golden calf and, and, the, and the, the Levites come in in their place, but they still retain their sanctity, which is why they need to be redeemed. And we still redeem the firstborn. 
you know, to sort of bring it back to, to what we were sort of looking at, the, the, the great puzzle here is the Bible seems to assert a unique status to the firstborn, both in terms of their sacred status as well as their financial status. They get a double portion of the inheritance. They need to be redeemed because they have a certain holy status. And the entire book of Genesis, and perhaps even beyond that, as we'll talk about Moses and Aaron, the entire book of Genesis seems to undermine that particular concept. It does. Because all of the younger brothers are the ones that are preferred. Now, Cain does murder his younger brother, Abel, but then there comes along Seth, and Seth is considered, as you can see, the way the, the Bible frames his descendants, he's considered to be primary. Right, but e- even in the Cain story, which of course is the, the first story of brotherhood, it's subtly sending the message that because you're born first does not mean that you're deserving of anything significant because he does just about the worst thing imaginable. He kills his brother, right? some firstborn. God doesn't listen to him. That's where the sort of the real movement comes in. In other words, the Bukhar is supposed to be the one doing the priestly services. And here God doesn't listen to Cain. It's a really powerful thought. And when you work it through the Bible and then you go, Isaac being chosen instead of Ishmael. And even though Jacob and Esau are twins, Jacob, who is the latter born of the twins, is, so to speak, the preferred one, certainly in terms of the biblical history. And, and it's interesting that, that they're twins, but normally with twins, we don't know who the firstborn is. We just, we just assume it's, it's the same. But with Jacob and Esau, we're told who's born first so that the subversion can be meaningful. Exactly, exactly. And then you keep going. And, you know, even with Rachel and Leah, Sure. right? So Jacob is in love with Rachel and Leah is kind of passed over and you keep going. And and then when you come to, of course, Jacob's own children, he privileges Joseph, who is the latter born, almost the last born, although it's not, it's, he's not Benjamin, but in other words, this is, you know, there's another term they call as ultimate geniture, which is the last child gets it, which is very unusual in terms of the anthropology of it, but it does exist. And here, you know, with Joseph, he's nearly the last born. And then when it comes to Jacob giving blessings to Joseph's children, so he puts Ephraim, the younger brother, before Menashe. And then we, we carry on into the next book. And then, of course, Moses who is not a firstborn, is the next leader from that family. He's, he's the thirdborn. Right. And, he's, and he runs ahead of, of his, his siblings, who, who are not always that thrilled about it. So what's, what's jarring, if you read the Bible, is that the Bible has a set of book laws on the books about the status of the firstborn, and yet it has a set of narratives that undermine those laws on the books. And the question is, is, is how, do you, how do you read this and how do you reconcile this? And what does all of this mean? A, a few things are so interesting here. One is, even with minor characters, the notion of primogeniture is subverted. For instance, Peretz and Zerah, the children, of, it's subverted there. Who, who else? What else do we know about them? Nothing. The only thing we know is that their firstbornness was subverted. Nothing else about them is recorded. But there, you see, that's a, an excellent example to sort of dig into. So if, if we want to sort of like start peeling this away, and, and, and there's a lot to be said, because I mean, we'll have to come back to talking about how the Bible is focused on sibling relationships, and we today focus on parent-child relationships and talk about why 
why that has changed. But Peretz and Zarach are the product of a, of a very unique relationship, which happens after Judah sells his brother Joseph into slavery. And he is the child of Judah and Tamar, who also, by the way, is, so to speak, widowed in part because of a sibling rivalry. Not a, And here we're not talking about the latter born coming before the firstborn, but more a sibling rivalry that Onan doesn't want to have children that will be on the name of his older brother, Er. And so Tamar is actually Judah's daughter-in-law. And, and as the Bible tells it in an often omitted passage in, in elementary school Bible classes, mm. she seduces her father-in-law and he has children with her. And this is Peretz and Zarach. And what happens is, is that Zarach actually sticks his arm out first and then Peretz comes out. And you almost get the sense that this is meant to be a contrasting image with the story of Jacob and Esau. Because in Jacob and Esau's case, Jacob is not sticking his hand out, trying to be also part of the firstborn. He's pulling Esau back. Interesting. In other words, instead of seeing being firstborn as something that is, is, is a good and that maybe all of us can enjoy and appreciate, Instead of uh, Jacob and Esau, instead of seeing it the, being firstborn as, as a shared good, they see it as an area of competition. And Peretz and Zarach reframe this, and they say, this is not competition. This is, both of us will somehow benefit from this. Zarach is almost like a little bit of a bachar. And when you're twins anyway, I mean, what does it really mean to be a firstborn? Well, that's right. I, I think- I think this example actually mocks the whole idea of primogeniture. It's like one kid sticks his hand out first, the other kid comes out first. Who's the firstborn? It's a debate. And what God is saying, it's a ridiculous debate. It doesn't matter. Right. And that, that's part of, and, and that's, that's the systemic look of it. And that's actually very powerful, the insight that you make. In other words, really, it, it does, but even with Jacob and Esau, it really does five seconds make right. that difference, that large a difference in character. But here the point is, is that, Maybe there is something about being firstborn. And that's what I'd like to sort of turn our attention back to at some point, is that maybe, you know, there is something wonderful about being firstborn, but it's not something that's meant to lead to competition between brothers. And I I think, you know, if I can come back to a point I, I just noted quickly earlier, moderns always see the primary conflict within the family as parents and children. That, that's where the conflict lies. And in a large sense, it has a lot to do with the fact that there are consistent changes. And certainly in the last 200 years have been consistent changes within society. And there is what you would call a generation gap, that the parents and the children don't always see things the same way. Parents want things that are their children, the children don't want it. And culturally, the, the conflict between parents and children is very understood because there's a generation gap. And in the Bible, the main conflict is really between siblings. Siblings are, are constantly sort of struggling, maybe struggling to get the love of their parents, maybe struggling to get control over what would be the familial heritage or the familial in- inheritance. And here the, the, the siblings are struggling constantly. And, and I think that's, that's really one of the, the powerful things here is 
can we figure out a way that siblings don't have to fight each other, but have to get along? And if being a Bukhar means you get advantages, then the Bukhar's got a big bullseye on his back because everybody wants those advantages. And so this, this sibling rivalry, which is so important to the Bible, yes. and this sibling rivalry is exacerbated by the institution of the firstborn. You know, perhaps the most interesting firstborn in the Bible is when God says to the Jews, I want you to be my firstborn. Now, we were not the firstborn chronologically at all. There were the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Parasites and the ancient Egyptians, and there were lots of other people. But God says to us, I want you to be our firstborn. And I think Rabbi David Foreman points out so well that the firstborn in that construction is not a chronological assertion. It's an assertion of responsibility. So what's the role of the firstborn in most families? In most families, the role of the firstborn is to be the leader. And when God says to us, I want you to be the firstborn, he's saying to us, I want you to be the leader. It doesn't matter where you were chronologically. I want you to be the leader. Because we all know you have four children. I have four children. We all know that if the oldest says something, the younger children are likely to follow the older. He's not always the leader, but he's a great archetype for a leader is the firstborn. Right. So, so there, is, there is a lot to be said about that. In other words, there, there really are two ways of looking at the firstborn. Now, the firstborn from, so to speak, a, a, a assets that the firstborn has, well, some of them are, 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 are accrue benefits directly to the firstborn. First of all, the firstborn is the child that makes his parents into parents. That's right. And that in and of itself makes a huge difference. I mean, one of the things about the Bible, and particularly the book of Genesis, is this incredible investment in fertility and in, in reproduction. Are we going to have kids? There's so many times the blessing, be fruitful and multiply. It's mentioned so many times. And that clearly underlines the fact that that is a great concern. The genealogies, in other words, you're someone if you beget someone. That's where you belong. You, be, you get into the genealogy if you are an ancestor. You're not an ancestor. You don't get into the genealogy. So first of all, a, a, a child becomes, so to speak, makes the parents into parents. But the other part of it is that firstborn really do have a physical advantage. They come immediately with a physical advantage. I mean, and we see this sense of the firstborn being more powerful, expressed multiple times. Esau is a hunter. Cain murders Abel. When uh, Jacob gives his blessings to Reuben, right? So what does he say to him? He says, you have greater strength and greater power, meaning you're the firstborn, you're powerful. There's a real power to them. So the firstborns have advantages that are, so to speak, born, you know, part of the framework. They, their parents may see them as a favorite because they're the firstborn. And oh my goodness, look, this is the one that made me, you know, I could, was able to walk around with the firstborn and show it to everyone and say, now I have a child. And second of all, they're older. And when you're older, you're bigger, you're stronger, you, you, you have that, that advantage. But you're absolutely right. The, the other thing about the firstborn is that they can be influential as well. And that, that is where the concept of responsibility, and I think this is where we're sort of going to sort of deconstruct what happens with the firstborns. But the idea of responsibility, you know, that there's a, a fascinating concept that's found in the Talmud that says, you know, the Talmud likes to, to sort of 
deconstruct words. And, and when it says, honor your father and mother, so in Hebrew, there's an extra word, an et. You should honor to your father and to your mother. And in, in you know, the Talmud always likes to analyze, okay, well, why do you need the et? Because it could just be honor your father and mother. And so the Talmud says the extra et is to hint to you that you need to honor your older brother. I happen to have uh, three older siblings. I, this, is, this is why maybe just biographically, this may be why it's one of my favorite topics. I am the youngest of four. And so this is really something interesting to me. But the idea that, no, no, you, the honor that you give to your parents also goes to your older brother. There's this real sense that, okay, I'm the firstborn, now it's not only in a stronger position and maybe even gets a little more love from the parents if you know parents are not thinking about it, but the firstborn now maybe is also in a position like the parents, meaning they need to take care of the younger siblings. But that's very interesting because as, 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 as someone whose sympathies are Karaite in nature, I would say the text doesn't say anything about an older brother. The text just says, and you're right, the, the Hebrew is so interesting, honor to your mother and your father. So... I think we got to stay within the mother and the father and trying to analyze what that means. Right. But I mean, I think that there, there is something really interesting about this. I think the Talmud actually, even if, if you're, you're charitic and sympathy, the Talmud is, is picking up on a really interesting psychological insight that, that sometimes they are paraparentists. They are like sort of partial parents and, and they're, they're like the ones that help the parent raise and therefore honor them because they have this responsibility. And here's where sort of the tension comes. Hmm. Because being a firstborn can mean privilege, right? I'm the firstborn, so I, I get more. But being a firstborn can mean responsibility. That's right. And That's right. if being a firstborn is about privilege, then the family is going to fall apart because everybody's going to fight. If being the firstborn is to model responsibility, then we can have a proper, so to speak, model of a firstborn. So, I mean, I I would just add that that really the problem of the firstborn is part of a larger problem of sibling disagreement and sibling rivalry in the beginnings of the Bible, which is very worrisome to the Bible, because to the Bible, the stories of the let's say the children of Jacob and all of these brothers in many ways is the future history of Israel. And if the children of Jacob can't get along or can't figure out how to get along, then the tribes are never going to get along. And that's, that's a real problem. Interesting. And actually in the, in the story, when God tells Rebecca, and it's ambiguous as to what exactly it is, but the traditional reading is the younger shall rule over the elder. This is the prophecy he gave to Rebecca. Actually, the term used in opposition to younger should be, you would know the Hebrew, of course, so please correct me, bachir, older. It should be, is that right? It should be bachir. Well, bachar, I mean, yeah, it says rav, yeah, avot sa'ir. Rav is, is right. So, it's, it's, so what it's saying is interesting. It's, it's opposing the younger to the wise or the great, implying, I think, that the older is not necessarily the wise or the great. It's saying identify who the wise or the great is and that person gets the privileges of the firstborn, just like God says to us, I want you to be the firstborn. In other words, I want you to assume the mantle of responsibility. If it was merely a chronological concept, it would make no sense for God to say to the Jews, I want you to be the firstborn. We'd say, wait, wait, what about you? Forget about the, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the No, he said, no, it's about responsibility. I want you to assume that responsibility. Just like here, 
the notion of the firstborn, God is redefining it and saying the leader, the, the, the leadership of the firstborn, that's going to be the one who's wise or the one who's great. Right. And, and, and that's really, I think, in many ways, the, the resolution. In other words, if we see this as, as one of the great contradictions in the Bible, the Bible seemingly telling us that there is a status to the firstborn, and then at the same time showing us that the firstborn never succeeds in, in the first book and a half of the Bible. The firstborn is never, so to speak, the primary. So how, how do you understand that contradiction? And I think the way to resolve it is to talk about the privilege of the firstborn versus the responsibility of the firstborn. That's right. In other words, the Bible is saying the firstborn may have been understood to have privilege, but really what's important is that the firstborn needs to have responsibility. And it's the responsibility of the firstborn that we certainly remember when we redeem the firstborn child, that there is a sense that this child now it just because they're firstborn needs to think about others and take care of others and needs to have and has a sacred task in life. That's right. And and as we get beyond the the, the sacred Torah and the five books of Moses and, and into the rest of scripture, we also see firstborn. David was an eighthborn and he became the king. Right. And and that is is a is is a comic example. Right. Uh, where Samuel is brought and he, he's uh, trying to anoint each brother and God says, no, not that one. No, not that one. No, not that one. And then finally God says, look, don't look at their appearances uh, because man sees with his eyes and God sees with the, into the heart. And that's why, why David is chosen is because God sees into the heart. So there's a, a whole other layer there of, of this, this constant awareness that even though there is a technical set of rules for the firstborn, the firstborn isn't isn't necessarily the one who's going to take the responsibility. And that really, conceptually, being a firstborn is all about taking care of those who come after you. And, and, and one of the many inspiring things about the Torah is a message to us is that we can each be the firstborn. We can each assume that mantle of responsibility. It's not a factor of how we were born or what order we came out or who we are. It's it's a matter of choice. We can each, God asks the Jewish people to be the firstborn. It can be extended to personally and psychologically as well. We can all be the firstborn. Right. And and I think that that's, that's part of, of what we need to see. It comes with with a, a, a caveat, and, and this has to do with, with all of the rivalries that are going on. Hmm. You know, we, we were talking just earlier a little bit about the ninth chapter of, of Judges, right, which talks about the children of Gideon and this son Avimelech, who in the city of Shechem murders out 70 of his brothers, his half-brothers, and takes the rule. And of course, there, there are powerful hints to the story of Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph and his right. brothers, of course, the, the initial meeting is meant to be in Shechem. It's not quite there. And the brothers want to murder Joseph and then eventually sell him into slavery. And one of the interesting things is, is that if you look at the chapter before that, there's a puzzling, you know, sort of lack of, of definition or, or vagueness, because in, in the chapter before that, there's a vagueness over, you know, Gideon is, is triumphant and he has all sorts of spoils. And there's a little bit of a vagueness. That are the spoils from Ishmaelites or Midianites? Now, the reader says, wait, there's, a, there's a, a, clearly an inconsistency. We seem to be jumping from Ishmaelites to Midianites. Now, there's only one other place in the Bible right. where that inconsistency happens, which is the sale of Joseph. And it is, it is 
plagues commentaries. Obviously, if, if you're going to follow higher criticism, it's very easy. You say it's coming from two different sources. But actually, the fact that this, this sort of inconsistency is, finds itself twice in the Bible sort of leads you to think differently. And this weird inconsistency about the people buying Joseph, it's, is it Ishmaelites? Is it Midianites? We kind of bounce back and forth in the text. And this inconsistency is, is, you know, perhaps explained. And there is one explanation, which comes from Ibn Ezra and Radak. And they say, well, don't worry about precision here, because if you go even further back in the Bible, both the Midianites and Ishmaelites are descendants of Abraham. Now, Ishmael is, of course, the son of Abraham with Hagar. And Midian is the son of Abraham from Keturah, which is the wife that he takes later on in life. So Ibn Ezra and the Radak try to sort of explain it away by saying, ah, oh, you know, it's they're, they're half-brothers. They're all, they all can sort of be identified the same way. You're sort of like, ah, you know, they all hung around with each other and they all could be identified the same way. And, and what actually is striking to me is that the Radak or Ibn Ezra didn't, I don't think they understood the implications of what they're writing. There is a brilliance to being imprecise about the Ishmaelites and Midianites if they're coming together as a group, because it shows you that half-siblings can get along just fine. And Joseph and his brothers, who are half-siblings, are failing at it, just like when we come to Judges 9, there's going to be Avimelech and all of the other children of Gideon who are going to fail at being half-brothers as well. And here you, so to speak, have what I would call an invidious comparison. On one side is the Ishmaelites and Midianites all going on a caravan down to Egypt to do business together. And here you have Joseph and his brothers who are literally in a, a, a death match trying to kill each other out. And, and the thing that, that always forces me to think about it is, okay, we have the, the comparison. What is it about Jacob's family that makes it so difficult for them initially, at least, to get along with each other. And, and maybe here I'm, I'm also sort of looking into the contemporary space and, and through Jewish history. What is it about this family that makes it sometimes so contentious? Uh, where, where is, what is the source of the contention between Joseph and his brothers that the Ishmaelites and Midianites seem to be blissfully free of? They don't, they, don't, they don't worry about fighting with, with half-brothers. And I think part of it has to do with, with maybe having that destiny. When you have a destiny, it's, it's actually rather overwhelming. And everybody says, no way, well, we have a destiny. We, you know, this is not, nothing trivial. We got to drive this way. We got to drive that way. We gotta, and and that's, that creates a lot of angst. And you know, Joseph wants to be in charge. And what do you mean? Why should Joseph be in charge? He's this little kid. He's irresponsible, blah, blah, blah. There, I, I really think that this intensity that comes with the identity of being the children of Jacob, and uh, again, similarly later on in history, really drives also a, 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 or creates a little bit of tension between brothers who don't necessarily see things the same way. Absolutely. What an interesting discussion about primogeniture. Now, moving from um, one text, the greatest text of all, the, the Torah, to a very different text is always a concluding question. So the second text is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. 
And he says in the book, I just ran to a man. He said, he said, I served this man in the war. He said, this man saved a lot of Jews and had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Haim, in all of your years as being a rabbi and really a leader among rabbis of great congregations, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? What are two things I've learned about humankind? Uh, that is uh, a, a heavy question, which you, you never want to answer on one foot. I would say, and I'm going to go back to one event where earlier on in my rabbit in 1998, hmm. I would say what, what really impresses me sometimes is, is how well people come together in times of crisis. And in 1998, you know, we, I was living in Montreal and Montreal had a terrible ice storm. And the ice storm almost uh, knocked out all of the electricity in the island of Montreal, but it, in, in our neighborhood, it, it knocked out most of it. And streets were impassable because the ice was hanging on, of course, to electrical wires and pulling down the wires and even pulled down four of the five transmission wires going into the island of Montreal. But it also made the streets very difficult to, to drive on, which meant that supplies were, in, 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 were difficult to get people's homes were not being heated. Uh, and a lot of people had to move out of their homes. And in particular, the elderly had to come out. And my synagogue at, at the time, or my, my synagogue, which was my synagogue at the time, had a generator, which allowed it to have electricity. And we turned the entire synagogue, and it wasn't me, it was a whole team of volunteers that turned the entire synagogue into a shelter for the elderly and for the ill, we even took people from a local old age home that were in an Alzheimer's unit. We created an Alzheimer's unit in our library. Volunteers came in in the morning and helped people shave and go to the bathroom and cooked food. It was just an unbelievable outpouring. And to some extent, I've, I haven't seen anything like it since, although watching what my synagogue and, and in particular, the, what we call the Chesed Committee, the, the Outreach Committee, the, the Caring Committee of my synagogue, calling people, delivering packages to people who are homebound, watching them do what they were doing the last five months is just unbelievable. So I, I think one of the things I found is how communities can really rally during times of crisis is one of the things that I've learned. I, I mean, he learned two very negative lessons. People aren't happy and, and they're not mature. Uh, <laughs> and that might, might, be, might be true. I, I think that people are capable of heroics is one of the things that I've learned. I also have learned that, yes, there is a lot of private torment. And, you know, you learn that. I, I had a friend who, who uh, took his own life and, uh, you know, none of us, a lot of, a lot of the people who knew him had no idea. Really? No idea. Turmoil that he was going through. Yeah. It was really rather shocking and, and almost, you know, so, you know, you do learn that. I, I mean, the one thing you learn is that you, you never really fully understand what another person is living through. And as much as we try to understand each other, uh, and as much as we try to communicate, you never fully understand the heart of another human being. Now, when something like that happens, I mean, I, actually, this reminds me of the, one of the manslaughter examples from, I believe, numbers where basically the priests are implicated. In other words, because what God is saying is, 
you're, you're guilty or you bear some of the guilt. But you wait, you wait. What happens is, is that we, we say, uh, are you referring to, to the, the Egla Rufa, the, 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 the sacrifice when someone is found dead between two cities? Or are you referring to? Yes, that? exactly. 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 That's right. Oh, okay. So, so there, yes. In other words, there is a very interesting thing because they, Offer and it's it's actually the Parsha next week, so so it's it's good to we're in two weeks. It's good to take a look at it because they say that that our hands did not shed this blood, and then it says, "Please, please atone." So it's a it's a strange contradiction. Our hands did not shed this blood, but please atone. And there are different strategies to sort of reconcile those two verses. And maybe let me just give a little context for the, for the those listening. There is a rule. That is, is that happens when a person is found dead outside of a city or between cities, and we don't know what exactly who killed them. So there is actually a, an atonement ritual that is done, and the elders re- wash their hands and they say, "We did not shed this blood, but God should atone for the people of Israel." And there are many different strategies on how you sort of reconcile the two. And, and the best strategy, which is used by even Rashi, seems to take this strategy is that, you know, none are guilty, but everyone is responsible, as, right. as Heschel put it. That, that you know, we, we, we sort of need to understand that even if we are not implicated in guilt, we all are responsible. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, you, you see a lot of things on social media. I have, I have a friend back in Montreal who, who uh, I mean, just going back to this unfortunate type of case, hmm. uh, who just wrote a post and he's, he's, he's in sales and he's very involved and he's very active on social media and he has a whole large following. And he, and he wrote that, you know, he heard that someone had taken their own life and he realized that he had gotten three emails from the person and never responded to them. And he mm-hmm. felt terribly guilty about that. Like he was too busy and the person was, was peripheral to him and he just didn't get around to responding. Now, you know, if you get a high volume of emails, it's not always that easy to respond to every email. Uh, but, you know, that's really that that sort of, we're very often situated in, in that, that very uncomfortable place where we may not be guilty. We may not do anything wrong. We may not even fail to do something right, but we still have this profound sense of responsibility that there, there's more that we can do and there's always more that we can do. Yes, I know that uh, when Fiala LaGuardia was mayor, he went to night court once and he told the judge, I'm, I'm going to hear the cases tonight. And there was a case about a woman during the Depression who had, she did it, she stole bread and other kinds of food to feed her grandchildren. And so the storekeeper said, well, you have to enforce the law. I feel terrible for her, but she stole from me. and We can't have a community where robbery is okay. And his ruling was he fined everybody else in the courtroom for living in a city where a woman could not feed her grandchildren. And he gave her like $47.50 and said, case dismissed. He said, you're right, she's guilty and, you're, and, you're, and, and, and so are you. And uh, so she got no fine. They got fined 50 cents. There were like 98 people in the room or something like that. That's brilliant. That's really brilliant. And, and look, you know, it reminds me of a passage in the Talmud where it says that, that David, commenting on a verse in the Bible that says that David judged according to justice and kindness, so what happened if he found the poor litigant and the poor litigant lost the case, David would take the money out of his own pocket and pay for it. So in other words, that was justice and kindness. Justice is you have to pay. Kindness is I'm going to pay for you. That's beautiful. So it's not justice or kindness. It's both. It's the justice is you're guilty, but the kindness is I'm going to pay and, and, and give you, and in LaGuardia's case, give you the money so this doesn't, you don't have to do this again. Exactly. Exactly. And finding that sort of middle space between the two. That's right. 
Well, Chaim, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about about so many subjects. And and uh, I, I mean, I, I look forward to your blog every day. And uh, and now I think everyone can can see why. It's just your ability to distill Jewish wisdom uh, so succinctly and so profoundly simultaneously is just remarkable. So uh, thank you for coming on The Rabbi's Husband and uh, doing it for all of us. It's it's great to see you, Mark. And God willing, we'll see each other in person sometime soon. God willing, we'll be able to do that uh, soon enough. You are the God of the brave. If you don't need those